we got about a million documents, and we thought we had a lot at that point, and then it became two, then it became three, until eventually, over a period of a year, we had 11 and a half million documents. We built a specially designed virtual newsroom for all the reporters. You get up in the morning, you go to your email, there'd be 30 or 40 notices there of things that, you, that someone else had found. I think in Australia it is impossible to do investigative journalism unless you have a major media company behind you, and it's because of litigation. An all-star conversation for you today. Jared Ryle is the brains behind the Panama Papers. He runs the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. And although he lives in D.C. these days, he is an Aussie. Kate McClymont is one of Australia's most celebrated investigative journalists, and she is on the Walkley board. We put them in a jar together at Storyology and shook it up. I'm Kate Golden from the Walkley Foundation. You are listening to a special edition of Walkley Talks, conversations from our 2016 Journalism Festival Storyology. Here are Kate and Jared. Before we start today, I'm sure that many people would actually like to know what the ICIJ actually is and who funds it. Okay, yeah, we're, we're a non-profit organization based in Washington, D.C. We get all of our money from foundations and from individuals. Um, foundations are probably things you've never heard of before, like Open Society Foundation, which is run by George Soros in London. We get money from Adesium Foundation in Holland, which is basically a rich um, Dutch family that like to promote social change. And also we get some money here from Australia from a guy called Graham Wood, who's a philanthropist here. Um, we're very much a shoestring operation. I have 12 people working for me in Washington. Um, and basically our mission is to bring investigative reporters together from around the world to work on global stories. That's essentially what we do. And so with the Panama Papers, explain how the leak came to you via the two journalists in Munich? Well, like every kind of overnight success, um, there's a back, you know, long history here, basically. We had worked with Süddeutsche Zeitung, the German newspaper, um, for four previous investigations. Um, each investigation was an international collaboration, um, and each investigation got bigger and bigger, basically. Um, there was a leak theme to them. There was, you know, um, offshore leaks, which was, again, an, off uh, an offshore story. We had Luxembourg leaks, which was about... Uh, um, tax evasion in Europe, and, and then we had a, a, we basically got internal records of HSBC Bank about a year before the Panama Papers. We called it Swiss leaks. Um, so you, um, by the time we got around to the Panama Papers, we were actually very keen not to have the leak theme because it was a very bad uh, word in America. Um, Americans think that if you have a leak, it's an easy thing. You get a document, you write the story. I can tell you it's a lot very, it's very, very different. So the, the, the guy, um, John Doe, as he was called, how did he initially make contact with the, the two reporters in Munich and why them? Well, it was with one reporter and he made um, electronic communication. Basically, he'd set up an encrypted communication system almost from day one. Um, the secret behind this is that, in fact, um, the German reporter was not the first person that John Doe had gone to. He had actually approached some major newspapers around the world and they had not bitten on the story. Um, where we got lucky is because we'd been working on offshore stories for a number of years and we'd been working with the German newspaper, we'd actually been targeting or looking at Mossack Fonseca for a number of months before John Doe came along. So when John Doe 
contacted Bastian Obermeier, Bastian knew right away that this was a very, very interesting firm. You know, Mugabe, Gaddafi were, were previous clients that was known. So the moment that John Doe said, are you interested in data? Then Bastian said yes right away. And how was the information given to them? It was, I can't go into details on that, but essentially he set up a system, encrypted communication system, and it would come in batches. So initially we, we got about a million documents, and we thought we had a lot at that point, and then it became two, then it became three, until eventually, over a period of a year, we had 11 and a half million documents. So did they sit on that material, like over that year, um, what did they do with the material? Well, when he first, when John Doe first contacted Bastian, very shortly afterwards, he contacted me because we had worked together and because it was quite clear from early on there were many people from many different countries, Bastian thought straight away, well, this is an ICIJ project. We need to get them involved. So he contacted me. I was, I have to say, I was a little bit skeptical at the beginning because I was worried that people would think, and all of our media partners would think, oh, God, here goes another offshore project. And so it needed to be something that was better and bigger than anything before for me to get me excited. Um, but he kept, he was very persistent. He kept bringing me with new documents saying, hey, I've got more, I've got better names. So eventually I flew over to Munich and we had three or four days in Munich. He and his um, writing partner, Frederick Obermeyer, they're not related in any way, but they actually look alike and they talk alike and they wear the same glasses. Um, <laughs> And they're, they're very nice young guys. I mean, one of them is like Bastian's 38 years old, Frederick's 32. So they're, they're, you know, they're young reporters. Um, we spent a few days looking at the documents and it became pretty clear at that point. You know, at that stage, we did have um, a lot of people involved in the collapse of the Icelandic banks. So you could see the names and you could go to Google and you could see that these people, some of these people were actually in jail. And then there were interesting characters, like there was a mafia hitman in there from Russia, basically, who had been linked to the Russian mafia, and he was in jail. Um, so after about three days of working, um, my uh, priority at that point was to make sure that we did secure it as an ICIJ project. So then I sat down with the editors at Süddeutsche Zeitung, and basically we drummed up an agreement. And from there, I went to London, and I met with the BBC and The Guardian. I showed them some of the documents, and immediately they were interested. So that was the beginning of the collaboration. We then had suddenly four organizations working together. And by the time we finished, we had 107. Right, and so as Anne said, um, I think the biggest mystery of all this is how you managed to uh, make journalists keep their mouth shut, work together, and keep to the embargoed deadlines. Because as we all know as journalists, you know, you've been given an embargo and you nearly cry when you see your opposition, um, you know, breaks the embargo. So how did, you know, how did you corral everybody? Well, again, it was built on trust and the trust had been built over the previous collaborations. So once we had them in the inner circle and they knew through the previous collaborations that this kind of collaboration and joint publication works, then it was easy. I mean, I like to portray this as basically if you've got, your, I come from a very large family, so if you have the older kids teaching the younger kids that this is a good thing to do, then you don't need to do it all yourself, the parents, basically. And so that's what happens. So every time we brought a new collaborator in, they were taught by the, the others that, I guess, the people that had worked with us before, that this was something that was um, worth doing. But the um, media organizations that weren't part of it, for instance, there was a very interesting thing with the New York Times. Um, when the Panama Papers came out, the New York Times wasn't part of it. And this was worldwide, you know, um, headlines everywhere. 
and the New York Times had a little bit on page five. And there was a bit of a backlash from their readers. So can you explain how you dealt with that or, or what their explanation was? Well, on day one, um, this story was front page news around the world, including in America. I mean, uh, USA Today basically splashed with it. They remade their front page. The New York Times, I think they put it on page three. And their readers were so outraged that they basically <laughs> contacted the reader's editor, um, which is like the ombudsman for the New York Times. And then she basically had an inquiry into why they'd missed the story. By day three, it was all over the front page of the New York Times, and they had two pages inside. And they basically, at that point, realized that this was something that they had to get involved in. We did have a history with the New York Times. When we first did the first offshore project, the first big collaboration back in 2013, I had actually approached the New York Times first with that story. And they took three months to basically make up their mind. And in the end, the answer was that they didn't want to collaborate. Um, what they wanted us to do was a bit like WikiLeaks. They want us to hand it over all the documents and then walk away. And they promised that they would credit us as being a source. And of course, that's not what we wanted to do. We wanted to build something that was different. We wanted every journalist to collaborate with each other and share everything they found along the way. And um, you're asking about how this worked. Basically, we built a specially designed um, virtual newsroom for all the reporters. So when you were invited into the project, you got a code for that, and then you basically had a password for it as well. And we expected you as a reporter to go in there every single day. So when you went into your, your physical newsroom, you had to then go into the iHub, which was our virtual newsroom. And there you could see all of your fellow reporters around the world. Um, it was a little green dot would pop up every time you were live. So you could communicate safely in there, and you could share information. Um, it's a bit like Facebook, essentially. It was, it was based on Facebook, where if you found a theme in the documents, if you were interested in, say, blood diamonds or sport or a certain country like Australia, and there was an Australian group in there, you would create a group. And every time you created a group, then all your other colleagues would be finding things out. And every time they found something new, um, there would be an automatic um, notice to you through your email, your normal email. So you get up in the morning, you go to your email, there'd be 30 or 40 notices there of things that, you, that someone else had found. So from an investigative reporter's point of view, it was fantastic because every day started with 40 new or 30 or 40 new leads. And, and tell us about the, the role of the um, Australian firm Nuix in uh, doing data wrangling for you. Yeah, I'd learned about NewX before or shortly after I went to America. This is actually a firm based in Sydney that until then, I don't think many people knew, but they're becoming very well known now. They basically sell software to big um, government organizations like tax departments and I'm not sure who else, but probably spy agencies. But basically what it allows you to do is is get very, very large, diverse data sets. So you could have PDFs, images, um, spreadsheets. Um, so you can, might have a million files, and their software allows very, very easily for everything to be scanned and indexed so that you can read it. It's a bit like you could then type in a name or a search term or do a Boolean search using Nuix. But it does more than that. It actually makes all the connections for you as well. So you can go behind the documents and go from, from A to Z, basically. It'll show you all the steps that you could make. But it's very expensive software. And so when I identified that we wanted and we wanted to use it, we were able to use our nonprofit status in America. And I approached Nuix and said, hey, can you give us some of your software? And they were fantastic. I mean, three years ago, well before Panama Papers, they gave me effectively $100,000 worth of software every year. They just donated it to us. Um, where it became relevant with the Panama Papers is that we needed to do searching 
pretty early on. Um, the, the problem with NUX is that, I mean, it's not a problem. They do have another system that would allow us to do it remotely, but we didn't want to hand the data over to anybody else. We wanted to keep the data. So NUX was very, very useful for us to have on air-gapped computers. So basically, but that also was a problem because you needed to be physically there in front of a computer before you could search it. But um, we managed to broker a deal with NUX to get the German newspaper free access to the software as well. And they did a lot of the early research in Panama Papers using this Australian software. Right, and, and just tell people a little bit about um, Mossack Fonseca itself. Um, because, you know, the interesting thing is it is, you know, controls only about, what, about 17% of the offshore company. So there's still another 83% that could be leaked <laughs> later. But anyway, just yeah. talk a little bit about uh, and, and your relationship with them now. Well, um, Mossack Fonseca is one of the big five firms around the world that set up offshore accounts for um, people who want, basically want to keep secrets, but also for major corporations, major accountancy firms, major banks, basically, they go to Mossack Fonseca. Um, they're based in Panama, and we call this the Panama Papers, but in fact, they had offices all over the world, um, in New Zealand, in England, in America, in China, um, and they were, as I say, one of the top five. I would say they have less than 13% of the market. There are 800 other kind of firms like this out there. They, had a, they were big, but they, weren't, they certainly weren't the biggest, and they certainly don't have a, a large percentage of the offshore world. It's, it's a very narrow little um, window that we're looking into here. But what was different about this is that we had 40 years of their records. So every email, every client file, every, every you know, spreadsheet basically since 1977 John Doe had copied and given to the to the Germans so we were able to see in real time the offshore world in a way that no one had ever seen before and and lots of interesting things came out I mean they also had interesting backgrounds themselves so basically um, Mossack Fonseca are two people one's Mossack and one is Fonseca Fonseca is um, a Panamanian and he's actually an advisor who was an advisor to the government in Panama um, uh, so I think Mossack had an even more interesting background. He was uh, the son of a German migrant to Panama. And we did research on his family in Germany. And we found that his father was actually in the Waffen-SS during the World War II, which is the most notorious uh, part of the SS. And then after the war, he became a spy. He actually joined and was a spy for the CIA. And it was the CIA that had sent him to Panama. Oh, right. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Well, his and, father, sorry, oh, his I father. Say. Yeah, yeah. Right, and so um, since the Panama Papers, do you know, I mean, it must have had a shocking impact on their business. Well, they've had to close several of their offices down, and they've had to resign from hundreds of companies around the world, particularly in America, because they're now under criminal investigation in America. Their offices in Panama were raided by the Panamanian government, and all of, the, all of their internal records and documents were seized. Um, supposedly for use by governments around the world, but we'll go into yeah. that later on. And look, we might talk about um, some of my favourite characters that have evolved, um, you know, through this story. And I think one of my favourites might be um, Vladimir Putin's friend, the cellist. Yes. If you could just explain about um, how, how much money this cellist managed to have. Well, we came across pretty early on in the research, we came across an awful lot of very unusual money transactions because... Mossack um, Fonseca were not just the register of offshore companies, but they also handled clients' money. And you could see an awful lot of money going back and forth and bank accounts and other things. And some of these offshore companies that were basically traced back to Russia were lending 
um, hundreds of millions of dollars to each other. So you would see a state-owned company in Russia lending money to an offshore entity, and then the, either the loan would be you know, basically repaid with a dollar, or lots of times it was they would lend in rubles or they would lend in dollars and, and you'd have to repay in rubles. Now, you can actually make an awful lot of money if you take one currency and then have to give another one back, particularly if you, know, you invade Crimea and the ruble goes down, if you know what I mean? So, um, but what was interesting is that it, they all seem to, a lot of these companies seem to go back to a cellist in Russia. Um, a guy that was, had been interviewed by the New York Times because he was a very close associate of Vladimir Putin. In fact, he was Vladimir Putin, uh, the godfather of Vladimir Putin's child. And, but he had been consistently saying, I'm just a cellist in an orchestra in Russia. I'm not a businessman. And yet here we were seeing hundreds of millions of dollars going through companies that this guy controlled. And in fact, one of those companies owned a ski resort in, in Russia, and that was Vladimir Putin's favorite ski resort. And it's where his other daughter got married. So, you know, it, it raised questions, shall we say. And, and there were other uh, um, associates of Putin's that came up as well, wasn't there? There were, there were a lot of other people, including some people that were on there that had been sanctioned by the US. So you were able yeah. to see them as well. So there was a whole cast of characters there from Russia. Um, they did very good business in Russia. Yeah. And one of my other favourites was the, uh, the FIFA ethics advisor, Damiani. Get <laughs> to talk about that. Well, once the FBI began to indict officials of FIFA, we thought, wonder if any of these people are in the Panama Papers. At that point, um, you know, we didn't call it the Panama Papers, but um, we'd started running, well, at that point we had worked out a way of doing batch searches on the documents. So you were able to put everything into a, every name into a spreadsheet and then run the spreadsheet through our search system that we had built. And all of the clues would come up. And we found consistently that a lot of the people that had been indicted by the FBI were in there. Um, but our biggest revelation was that the people who was, who was actually setting up all of these offshore companies for these people that were being indicted was sitting on the ethics committee of FIFA. <laughs> and he hadn't been mentioned at all by the FBI. And in fact, a lot of the companies we were looking at, the FBI weren't aware of because we went through all of the court documents in New York and they weren't listed. So we knew we had more than the FBI. And also, um, I think there might be 12 leaders or former leaders that you came across um, throughout the world. What, what, what were the biggest scalps, do you think? Well, we've, you know, we've obviously had some prime ministers and presidents in there. Uh, the reason why we were focusing so much on politicians was um, a basic question for journalists. You know, when you get documents that are clearly taken illegally, um, you have a, a, you know, I guess you have a dilemma or some sort of ethical dilemma as a journalist. So I was very conscious at the beginning that we were going to focus on politicians and public officials because I wanted to get over that argument. I mean, one thing I'm very proud of with Panama Papers is there's been no real backlash. No one's ever questioned really why, apart from Mossack Fonseca themselves, you know, why, how we're able to, as journalists, use material that had been stolen. Um, one of my first meetings was with our lawyer, and I came back from Munich um, right after that meeting, after I'd been to London. The first meeting I had was with the lawyer, and we sat down, and I said, look, you know, I've got a bit of a problem. We've got this anonymous source. He's given us all these documents. It's a very interesting company, but I'm pretty sure that Mossack Fonseca, you know, don't know that these documents have been given to us. And he just said, well, did you steal them? And I said, no. And he said, have you caused them to be stolen? In other words, were you directing any of this? And I said, no. And he said, well, you're fine. Under American law, not a problem. But I still think we had, had to go that extra step. So we focused a lot 
on politicians. Every time we saw a politician, we examined that, we went outside the documents to put context around why was there an issue here, for instance, with this politician having an offshore company. We found 140 of them in the end. There were 12 current and former world leaders in there. Wow. And I think also in the documents, you were careful not to disclose things like um, passports, bank details. I think you even had passwords to some of the bank accounts. Yeah, we had. I mean, this was every. This was the motherload. You had everything in there. Everything that Marsak Fonseca had, we had. So whoever had copied this was, as I say, it was a day-to-day -day transactions. It was there was even stuff in there about us, um, you know, the ICIJ, because once this. Um, this story we did in 2013, which also involved a breach of security at, a, at an offshore services firm, they were basically talking about it in real time about us and what they were going to do and how they were going to prevent it ever happening to them. And they were actually bragging to their clients saying, this is, we've got the state-of-the-art security, this will never happen to us. And that was, oh, they were, no. those conversations were right up in the middle of 2015 as we were researching the story. <laughs> oh dear, not so good. Um, so when the, the guy that leaked this, I know that there was um, there was a story in June in the Swiss papers saying that um, uh, a computer operator from Mossic Fonseca had been arrested. Is that was no, that right it's, or is that well? It's not source. Um, uh, it, it looks like what happened after we published is that some enterprising person inside Mossack Fonseca grabbed a whole lot of documents because. Um, these documents were quite valuable. We were refusing to hand them over. We're still refusing to hand them over to government authorities. And government authorities, um, some government authorities buy these kind of documents. They're worth a lot of money. I can tell you, like millions of dollars. So I'm not sure if that was the motivation for this person, but they basically copied a whole lot of documents. But it couldn't have been the source because everything was copied after we'd published. So um, we're very confident that John Doe has never been found. Right, and do you have any idea of, of John Doe's motivation? Well, John Doe put out a manifesto several weeks after we published where he basically um, outlined the reasons why he did this. And he essentially said that he, um, he basically wanted to expose the scale of the injustice, basically, that were, that were contained in the documents. So I, I'm very confident. I mean, the only person who had contact with John Doe and the only person who has ever had contact with John Doe was Bastian Obermeier, the German journalist. And he says that he was talking to this person more often than his own wife, basically. They, you know, because it's, anyone who's managed sources will, will, will tell you that you need to pay a lot of attention to them and you need to hold hands all the way through and you need to have a rapport with them. I mean, they were joking back and forth you know, using encrypted communication systems. And I was watching, you know, from early days in Munich when we were sitting there watching, he was showing me the, the conversations that they were having. And they were joking like friends. And he says, even now, like they're still, they've had to change their communication system several times because, you know, we've been hacked and... and um, so, so who's yeah. hacked you? We don't know. I mean, some of our computers have been hacked and we've had to take down a lot of our documents several times and put them back up again. So what we did, we put all the documents in a cloud and we allowed the reporters in to look at all the documents. We've had to change that password and we've had to change that address several times. The German newspaper, Süddeutsche Zeitung, was under enormous attack from the moment they published. Right. Right. Okay. It's because I, I think trying to keep confidential that amount of of documentation when you've got, you know, journalists. I know that you're controlling it from a central hub, but um, 
it's interesting that you've managed to do that. Well, the biggest danger for us really was the other journalists. I mean, you know, every time you brought a new journalist into the fold, you were increasing your risk as you went along. Right. Um, and so therefore you needed to be very, very careful who you chose. I mean, Marina Walker, my deputy, always says, is like, when you're inviting, you know, if you were having a dinner party tomorrow, who would you invite as a guest? Yeah. And there are people that you trust, that you, you know, that are good conversations, because we really want everyone to, to collaborate and to, the whole idea here is that when you find something exciting, no matter what, whether it's Malcolm Turnbull, whether it's, you know, Eddie O'Bead, you have to tell people right away, you can't keep it to yourself, otherwise these things don't work these collaborations don't work. So you need to have the right mindset. And it's the very opposite of everything. You know, and I, I will say that I've been an investigative reporter most of my career. I have been mostly a lone wolf. I never share with anyone, not even my editor. And I've had to completely reverse that, mind, mind, that mindset and that thinking and, and, and learn that if you share, and which, with the right people, I should add, you get a much better result in the end. Well, I mean, this is the, the fascinating thing, I think, about the Panama Papers was that the way you did it, it was worldwide. It was everywhere, every news organisation, which had a much greater impact than uh, the Brits doing it and then a couple of weeks later. I just think that the, the way it was handled was a good model to, um, to learn from. But since that time, have you been inundated with some not-so-good information? Because in the, in, when you do a big investigation, the tragic thing is that you then get absolutely inundated by crap. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do think, though, that 99% of, of tips you get are usually go nowhere. But if you don't chase them all down, you know, if Bastian Obermeyer had not chased down John Doe and basically done what the other reporters, and I'm talking about some major media organisations here, they ignored this tip. They were skeptical and they didn't ask the right questions. He jumped on it. The reason why, you know, as far as I'm concerned, he's a hero. Um, and, you know, I think I'll also put John Doe out there in the hero status too. But he basically did the job of a journalist. He didn't dismiss this. He, so, he asked more questions. So who in your organisation is doing the examination of preliminary... Is material coming directly to your organisation or are you still doing it? Are people coming to you from media organisations saying, can you help with what we've got? It's a bit of both, in fact. It started with us coming up with our own ideas all the time, going to them with, with things, but now increasingly it's, it's people coming to us. I mean, we did a, a, a very big story in Europe called Luxembourg Leaks, where we basically exposed Luxembourg as a tax haven. That came from a tip that I got from a BBC journalist who we'd worked with, basically on a previous story. He said, hey, there are all these documents out there. If you can get your hands on it, you've got to have a very good story. Um, a year later, we did the, we got all the internal records of HSBC Bank. We got that through Le Monde newspaper in France. Again, a partner we'd worked with several times before. And once I learned they had the material, it was basically at their front door saying, you've got to make this an ICIJ project. And in that case, it was these two police reporters who were the two biggest lone wolves you can possibly imagine. And they were saying, absolutely no way are we sharing. But after a while, they realized, and now they'll tell you, they wrote a book after, after the Swiss leaks, basically, based on this. And they will tell you it actually works if you do it right. Yes, I think that's the thing, if you do it right. Have, have you had any disasters? Well, we had a lot of learning process along the way, not necessarily with the Panama Papers, because by then we'd perfected a lot of, we'd, we'd made mistakes in previous ones before. The first one we did with offshore leaks, I have to say it was a series of 
you know, calamities and disasters behind the scenes until we finally got it right. And one thing we learned is that you need to give all of the documents to the journalists all of the time, right the way through publication and after publication. Initially, when we got our first big leak, we thought, okay, how are we gonna manage this? We never thought that you could put it up on a cloud and then pipe it down through the cloud into newsrooms. We thought the old-fashioned way, we'll set up research desks around the world, we'll get the journalists to go to, to those hubs, and then they'll work together in those hubs. It was a disaster, it didn't work that way. It was only when we finally found a way of putting it you know, in a search system where the journalists could go in there every day and consistently work on it in their own time um, that it actually started to work. And the fallout from the Panama Papers, what, what do you think that will be? Well, I think the fallout, I mean, there's the immediate fallout, obviously, there was the high-profile resignation, there was uh, public protests. Um, but to tell them about Iceland. Well, you know, Iceland was one of my favourite stories because we had identified it pretty early on. Um, but it presented a challenge for us in many ways because we knew that we had a company called Wintress Inc., uh, which was in the British Virgin Islands, that had been owned by the sitting Prime Minister of Iceland. But when he registered the company, he wasn't a, a politician, he was a businessman. So was it a story? Um, the only way we could crack this story was to involve an Icelandic journalist, which presented another dilemma for us because it's a very small country. We'd been warned that if you go to the wrong person, the information would go straight to the Prime Minister the next day. And of course, we saw all these other names too involving the Icelandic bank collapse. So we went to our Swedish media partner and asked them who they would recommend. And in fact, they recommended this guy, Johannes Christensen, who we eventually ended up using. And I went back through my old emails, and Johannes had been emailing me three years, basically saying, the next time you get a leak, will you, will you, will you, work, you know, work with me, work with me? He's quite a, a famous Icelandic reporter. But in order to do this, this story, he had to quit all, he was a freelancer, he basically had to say no to all work for nine months. His wife supported him, and he basically became a recluse. And, and he took the, the, the clues that we had at the beginning, that, that here was a company that might be a story, and he went outside the data. And again, I would always urge journalists to go, don't rely on the leak. And he basically found that, you know, he went through the uh, Pecunia Interest Register in, in Iceland and found that the, when, he, when this guy became a politician, he never declared the company. And then he went further, he went into all of the um, bankruptcy records for the Icelandic banks and found this company in there as a, basically as a creditor. Um, and it was called Wintress Inc. So unless you knew that that belonged to the prime minister and his wife, you'd, you would never have made the connection. And where that became a story is that here's a prime minister making decisions, elected on the basis of fixing the problems of the Icelandic bank collapse and not telling him that he had a financial interest in those banks. That's a story. And, and also, I, I love what the, um, the Icelanders did <laughs> once this was made public. Well, we also had other issues there because we, Johannes is so well known in Iceland that if he had requested an interview with the Prime Minister, Johannes told me that he would never get the, that the Prime Minister would not trust, here is a famous investigative reporter, he'd be too suspicious and he wouldn't turn up. So again, ethical dilemma, we went to Sweden and we asked them to basically get involved. So they came over from Sweden and set up the interview with the, with the Prime Minister. So the famous interview was filmed by the Swedish film crew with Johannes as the fixer. Um, and then, you know, we, at that point, this is happening three weeks before publication because under American law, we've got to give everyone a right to basically um, put context around, tell us their story, their side of the story. So we sweated for three weeks, basically, with that footage. And he went out there and he and his wife basically tried to spin the story. 
Um, but we got very lucky because without knowing it, honestly, it, it wasn't planned. The day we published was the first day back of Parliament. And he was refusing to resign. And suddenly, the next day, the entire, in the, you know, the Parliament House was surrounded by people. It was the biggest public protest in Icelandic history. And they were throwing fruit and <laughs> yogurt at the building, <laughs> insisting that this guy resign, which he had to. He was basically forced out by the people. I know it's a, a fascinating story, and I think on, um, on that note, there's probably heaps of questions that um, people in the audience might like to ask. So I think we've got, um, we've got two microphones. Oh, yes, there's one right here. The one thing that I was going to ask is, uh, is there anything in the field of journalism that you can learn from this global uh, collaboration that you've done for like the future of journalism, the technology. Yeah, I think it's a method that that we ha now have to. We've shown it can work. I don't think it's going to work for every story. So I think it's silly to say that this is the future and the only future. I think it's one part of the future. I think that you can now. I think what we should be doing here is localizing it. Why not work together? I mean, we had the BBC and the Guardian working together in Britain, and. You know, the BBC show was 72 hours after we published, and yet they were willing to join this collaboration. And in the end, they had, you know, they had the biggest figure since 2013, the biggest story since 2013. Their, their online figures doubled while we waited for this program to come out on the Monday night, which again was 72 hours after publication. Um, and The Guardian was basically helping build an audience for that story because they were publishing story after story after story online and in print. I think that that's something I know is happening more and more. Uh, I think we have to break down this barrier, this, this, this you know, distrust between us. And it, as long as you're not a competitor, I don't think the Australian and the Sydney Morning Herald could ever work on a story together, I think, because they're just big competitors. When we're building our collaborations, we try and make sure that we, do, we have complementary media, basically. We had Four Corners working on it, and we had the Australian Financial Review. We did have Guardian Australia, but that was because we couldn't exclude them because we were giving everything to Guardian back in the UK. But in an ideal scenario, we wouldn't have had a competitor. Uh, we would have two complementary media or three complementary media like we have in, in Germany. We had TV, radio, and print, and they all helped each other. Um, I think it's a model for the future. We might get one while we've got the um, microphone there. I'm just curious, in terms of privately held documents, what sort of civil legal liabilities are you guys open to or people that access those documents in their development of their stories? Is there potential legal consequences to using, I mean, leaked or stolen papers? Um, it's a good question. We basically don't take legal um, responsibility for any of our media partners. So every media partner comes on board with an agreement that they're responsible for their stories. But uh, we work in America and we do the global story. And under American law, we have First Amendment protection, which is uh, after you've worked here for 20 years, believe me, it's like paradise. You know, As long as you get your facts right and as long as you've given people a good chance to respond and you've taken every step to contact them, and put the story into context, it's difficult to, to get sued over there. Whereas here, I mean, you know, I can't although, tell you, it's very, here, very difficult. Um, yeah. Here it is similar though, is if, if somebody um, gets those documents illegally and gives them to you, as long as you have not engaged in the illegality, or as Jared said earlier, encouraged them to engage in the illegality, you can use that information. It's a bit like, um, 
what happened with the 60 Minutes program um, in Lebanon. I think where they got into trouble was that paying the kidnapping company then linked them to, you know, to, to potential illegality. Whereas if they had just turned up and said, we're filming, um, you can film what somebody else is doing as long as you, you are not engaged in the illegality. That's my understanding. I think we've got a, um, a microphone over here. Uh, I can use my oh, okay. Here's the microphone anyway. Sure. <laughs> um, as you were just mentioning, you, you know, you've had trouble in your 20 years here. I think you were once threatened, if not actually jailed, for some of your reporting in Melbourne. Is that right? No, no, not you, Kate. <laughs> Jared, is that I was that threatened, right? but I never actually went to jail. Right. Yeah, and yeah. So, and you, so you know that, that it's very different in the US. You have better shield laws. Um, you know, you have, it's a lot easier to get a recording, for example. What can journalists in Australia do in the face of some of these restrictions, in the face of, you know, uh, problems with data retention laws, with, um, you know, increasing government surveillance creep on journalists? What should journalists be doing in response to that? Well, I'm not a big fan of advocacy. I think it's very important that if you're a journalist, you shouldn't be in advocacy. But I do think that journalism groups should be advocates for us and they should be basically lobbying for better laws. I think the laws here are really bad. It's very hard to be a journalist in Australia, mainly because you've got to have a lot of money to defend yourself. I, mean, I, I you know, I basically getting a legal letter was not a, was not was a very common thing when I was working here. Getting a legal letter in America sends them into apoplexy. It's so unusual, you know. So when I got my first legal letter when I went over to the ICIJ, I was waving it around the office, saying, "Oh, I got a legal letter. No big deal." My boss went crazy. He 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 nearly had a heart attack, you know. And then when you can get subpoenaed here reasonably easy, and again, it's a little bit like a badge of honor. You know, I've been subpoenaed before, I've had documents seized, no big deal. Um, so when I got my first call for the, the first officer story we did, and I got a call basically asking, saying, if we don't give us the documents, we're going to subpoena you, I was going upstairs, God, I'm going to get subpoenaed, you know? And it hit, they went crazy again, you know, because it never happens. So they immediately said, there's no way we're going to be allow ourselves to be subpoenaed, and they were basically going to get pro bono legal firms and make a big deal of it. In the end, we weren't. But again, it's, it's just different, different rules. I mean, you'd be able to... Yes, it, look, it is, um, it's completely different rules. And with the, um, the, the data laws, it just means that, you know, as soon as you're, someone, a whistleblower contacts you, they've already compromised themselves because there's a trail. Like, really, the safest thing to, to use is Australia Post. Like, <laughs> I, I, I know it sounds old-fashioned, but we do have to operate now um, using encryption devices. You know, you, you email, you, you send documents using those encryption devices. But it's, you know, it's hard for people to get in touch with you and not leave, uh, you know, a trail. Um, yes, up here. Uh, I'm interested to know uh, any collaboration that you've had with the hacking community, um, both in terms of like hope, helping you to identify vulnerabilities in your, your systems for protecting information, but also in finding the sources, well, using them as sources of information in the first place. Um, I haven't had any. Yeah, no, we don't, we don't do it. We actually, you know, ICIJ's got 12 people. Six of them are actually computer engineers. So they're, they're programmers. Um, they're, they're experts already. I mean, it's not that we don't get outside help, we do. Uh, we go out and we, we sometimes have to get, I mean, for, for this project, for instance, we had a security expert basically come in to give us, to give us a hand. 
um, but we don't get involved in the hacking community, although I have to say some of my staff do go along to, to, to hacking events and they love that, you know, the, the, you know, the fun of it, I guess, if there is fun involved. I mean, I'm, I'm a dinosaur, um, you know, I wouldn't be able to do any of this myself, but, you know, um, I, I, I just think you've got to be very careful not to get involved in something that is illegal. You know, uh, again, as, as Kate says, and I agree, if it comes to you passively, it's fine. But if you get directly involved or if you try and say, hey, wouldn't it be great to get all of Malcolm Turnbull's private emails? But well, we've, we've, know, had, yeah. um, we've had an interesting um, hacker recently who hacked into our editor-in-chief's email and then used that email to send a note to say, take down all the stories involving this person, the hacker. <laughs> so luckily, I think we've got somebody here who might know about this. So that person emailed back and said, are you sure you want to take down all these stories? And it was only then we realised that this person had hacked in. Yeah. And it's, it's quite scary. Well, I mean, what's scary, what the lesson that I've learned from the Panama Papers is that nothing is, nothing is safe. You know, every email you send, everything you've done electronically, it's all vulnerable one way or the other, no matter how many... I mean, you know, I go back to Mossack Fonseca where they were bragging about the security systems to their clients. Yeah. Um, yes, over here. And then we'll go to you next. Um, Jared, I was listening to um, Oppenheim, I think, on... ABC Radio, and he was talking um, about the um, the documents. He said that um, I think he mentioned that they were had been offered to WikiLeaks, but they refused them. Can you can you just tell us a bit about that, and also about um, why the other big media may have you know you mentioned that they refused them as well? Can you tell us why? Um, yeah, I've got I think simple explanations for both. Um, we learned about WikiLeaks after we'd published. We didn't know. Can you imagine? the heart attack I would have had if I thought for a moment that he'd been in touch with WikiLeaks. We're not sure whether or not he was in touch with WikiLeaks during the period we were researching, which is actually quite likely. It appeared in the manifesto that he produced, where he actually, because um, we were criticized by WikiLeaks after we published, by, because they were saying, you need to now publish all of these documents, otherwise it's not really, um, you know, it's not transparent. And we were saying, no, we're journalists. We have to filter everything through a journalist perspective and, and apply our ethics. So WikiLeaks were, you know, and it got a bit personal because basically Julian Assange was attacking me. You know, again, our policy was don't react, don't say anything. So it was kind of funny that they'd been offered the material and hadn't responded. You know, so that was that was kind of nice. I've kind of lost my, my trail of thought, though. I was going to say, oh, um, there was a second part of your question. You just remind me of it. Yeah, um, well, I think it was it was a major media organization in the United States, and they were contacted um, about something very specific in the Panama Papers to do with a court case in Nevada involving the Argentine um, president. And what was happening there was a very big um, Republican donor who's basically in charge of or owns all of these vulture funds had lent money to Argentina, and he was suing Argentina, the state, through the courts in Nevada, and it was a very high profile. Um, court case, and it was known that that, that um, private detectives had been involved and were searching for information. So I suspect, and again, I was able to read these emails, that when the John Doe made contact with the reporter, the reporter assumed it was some sort of like dirty tricks campaign on behalf of the Vulture Fund. And but again, you know, if you're a reporter, you would have asked a few more questions. Yeah, and I think there was somebody. Oh, you've got yes. the microphone. Hi, um, Jared, you once said that investigative reporting is the only true form of journalism and it's something that a lot of people really aspire to, but as you've touched on, it can be 
incredibly expensive, time-consuming. You gave the example of Johannes, who basically was supported for nine months by his wife. Um, there's legal repercussions, as you both well know. What advice would you give to someone who's inspiring that doesn't have a supportive spouse or organization behind them to help pursue this career? Well, I just think if you've got a passion for this, you're going to end up doing it anyway. Um, you might, every now and again, you might go away from it, but it'll always draw you back in again. I think the one common thing that all of the reporters had and why it was, you know, in some ways not difficult to get us all to work together is that we had that passionate, you know, we were all, we're all investigative reporters. We tend to go, when we're building collaborations, we don't go to the bosses of the papers, we go to the reporters. And we say, basically, have I got a story for you? And if you can't get that across in a sentence and get them excited, then you haven't got a story. Um, but once you have a story, a good reporter basically, they live on, it's like, I once, when I first went to ICIJ and I was trying to raise money because it's part of my job, I went to our major funder in Holland and I, at the time, probably made a mistake because I said, they said, well, what's your plan going to be for ICIJ? I said, I'm going to get the heroin they want and I'm going to give it to them and that's going to be, and they're going to want that over and over again so they're going to keep working me for free, which is essentially um, our model. We pay for 20 reporters and we get all these 350 for free. Um, but what do we have for them? We have a good story. We have, you know, the heroin. I probably used the wrong term because, but... <laughs> You know, the, the Dutch are pretty straight and they was like, you could see their faces. But you, you get my point. I mean, if you have that currency and you're, you know, you give but, but, Kate but, a good story and but, she's got to work 24 know, seven but, but for seven having, days. Having yeah. said that, I think in Australia, it is impossible to do investigative journalism unless you have a major media company behind you. And it's because of litigation. Even somebody writing you a legal threat costs money in hiring lawyers to reply, to answer, to, um, it's, it, it's hard. I could never do what I have done without having the Sydney Morning Herald behind me. And, you know, Jared and I have had so many legal threats over the years. And it's just a price that you have to pay for doing what you do. And it's sad but true, really. Yeah, but I think if you start small and work your way up, I mean, it's also very important. Although I may have said what you said, and I, I still believe it, but I do think you've got to learn your trade in other ways as well. You've got to learn how to write. You've got to learn how to research. There are other tricks that you need to... And the only way to get good at it is to do it over and over and over and, again. And there's no secret. No. Like, the investigative journalism has some kind of mystique, but it, it is really just an extension of what every good journalist should do. It's just that you have to be more patient. And often your stories can take years and years to come to fruition and you chip away at it. But any good journalist can be an investigative journalist. It just is if your organisation can give you the time to do it and do it properly. Other, um, oh yes, behind. Hi. Um, just in the same way that uh, hackers would actually be part of e-security and beefing that up in that almost paradoxical kind of way, is there, is there ever a worry there that every time you have the next big story that relies on um, some kind of whistleblower or some kind of hack or leak, that you're indirectly making, making it uh, more of a priority or improving these um, shadier organizations' security to stop this happening the next time than the next time? 
Oh, yeah, it's a good point. In fact, when I was investigating the place in Victoria for many years, I was always get to that point where the, the basically the crooked cops used to just do it in a better way and more sophisticated way. I think that's something that's inevitable. I think, you know, every other firm other than Mossack Fonseca is probably now um, taking better security measures. But they're also, I imagine, too, probably doing you know, doing their job a bit better, actually, you know, questioning who are the clients and are we vulnerable later on? What happens if the ICIJ or, you know, the Sydney Morning Herald gets a hold of our, of our internal documents? Are we gonna be able to defend that? So I do think that by instilling that fear, you are actually improving, um, you know, it's an improvement by itself, it's actually a result by itself. But it is interesting when you think about, um, in the old days, that, that 11.5 million um, pieces of, of um, information that you got from the Panama Papers would have been on bits of paper. You would have had to have trucks to get it out. And when you think now that, I, I think I read in the paper the other day that almost every book in the world can now be encrypted onto you know, something the size of a matchbox. Mm. You think it, it, it works both ways. It's easier for people to get the information out just as it is you know, harder to, um, you know, keep it isolated. Um, other questions? Yes. Um, you've both had a hand in exposing some pretty shady and shonky characters over the years and you're, you're quite public figures. Um, legal threats are one thing. Do you ever come under any other kind of threat for the work that you do? Is there ever times that you felt at risk? Um, I, I haven't had Kate's experiences. My my biggest fear is always law lawyers. I mean, that they're the ones that have they're the ones that have made my life a misery. I've never been really threatened. I mean, the only people who ever um, threatened me were, were the police to put me in jail. So, you know, uh, Kate's on the other hand seems to be on a constant threat. Oh, look, yes, um, there are occasions when you do get threatened. Um, I've had death threats delivered to my house, which. And it's not me that I worry about. I worry about my family. That's the thing that, you know, concerns you the most. But, you know, you can't let it get to you, otherwise you can't do your job. And I remember, you know, one of my police contacts saying to me years ago, it's the ones that don't threaten you that are the ones that you really have to worry about. The ones that are actually threatening you, they just want you to stop what you're doing. And I always think of that, I think, you know, when people ring up and threaten me before I do a story, I always think I'm on the right, the right track, I'm going to go twice as hard. <laughs> but you're also twice as careful because you, you, it does make you stop and think and it sometimes is really useful for them to give you a legal letter because often they point out things that they would be, you know, end up using in court so you can actually improve your story near the end and, and, and basically stop, stop that argument. Yeah. Yes, but you know, Jared and I um, have talked about this. You know, when you do publish a big story, you are not filled with joy and elation. You are terrified, you are petrified, you can't sleep, you are just concerned. Have I got everything right? Have I done everything? Because we are human, and you know, it is, you know, you can make mistakes. So, our job, I think people think that, you know, you live this sort of, you know, you're triumphant about things. You're not. Most of the time, you are absolutely scared, witless. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're yeah. pretty numb, basically, all the way through. And, and every phone, every time the phone rings or every time the, the, the mail arrives, all you can think of is who is going to complain now, what's going to go wrong, yeah. what's going to be revealed, you know, what legal letter am I going to get? But six months afterwards, when you look back, you, that's, that's when you say, oh, okay, that worked. And then, of course, you've got that terrible fear because, okay, what am I gonna do now? 
<laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. Um, I think we've got time for one more question. Oh, one more question. Who has... Uh, right. Uh, just one more, and it might be a little bit ambiguous, but it's kind of um, what I was interested in on the investigative side of things is, you know how there's all the news of, in terms of looking a bit forward, um, AI taking over things like lawyers and accounting. Is it possible that, in the same way you're talking about that program you're using to collate all that data and actually use it in a smart way, is it possible for that to work in for investigative journalism in a way where there'll always pro probably be a human aspect where they've got to join the dots, but... AI being used in, say, 10 years' time to actually find some of these stories for you? I, I think not. Well, maybe, but people come to you, they've, they've got a motivation. It's more often than not, it's revenge, retaliation, and sometimes it's altruism, but usually it's the first two things are motivation, which, you know, doesn't impact on the work we do. It's important to understand why someone is coming to you, because if their motivation is revenge, you have to work twice as hard to make sure that the information isn't being clouded by um, their own motives. But there's always a human element in you know, why people come to you with the information in the first place. Artificial intelligence may be uh, used to search, you know, algorithms to, to search documents and things like that. But I think there's always going to be a, a human element in how it comes to you in the first place. I don't know what you think well, about I that. Well, I mean, I just think that, that uh, something that's underdone here and elsewhere is, is basically using artificial intelligence to gather publicly available information and turning that into, into something that's searchable. Because when you're looking for stories, you're always looking for patterns. And until you have the information, you can't look for the patterns. But you can actually teach a computer to look for patterns, I think. But you could also, you know, say, I mean, a simple example would be government, procure, you know, government procurement records are now increasingly being published. But they're being published in ways that are impossible to search. So why not write a program that will turn that information into something that might be searchable? And then it's a repository and a resource for you, which you can then write a second program that basically looks for patterns in terms of addresses or in terms of company, consistent you know, mentions of companies or whatever. And then you can go outside those documents and maybe cross-reference it with another data set, which again, you can write another program for. And so I do think that we have to get smarter in hmm. the ways that we're gathering information and the way we're using machines, basically. We're doing a little bit of it now with, with you know, with, with, we have to because of the, the size of the data sets that are coming to us as journalists. But I do think that we're not doing uh, a lot of things we, sh we ought to be doing, basically, which is not that difficult. But I have to say, when you were saying that, you, you just think how far we've come. I can remember when I first started off as an investigative journalist, we couldn't even do um, a, a company search. You had to go down to company's house they wouldn't let you search, you know, I couldn't search Gerard Ryle. I had to know the name of the company. And I remember doing a union official and someone said his great passion in life was greyhounds. So I got the name of all his favourite greyhounds, the most successful ones, went down to company house with the name. And I remember Pied City came up with the company and there it all was. But I think now we can just sit at our desk and type in. So you sort of think, you know, how far we've gone from there. So it'll be great to see what happens in the future. As Jared was saying, what data will become available for us to use. I think it's going to be really exciting.
You've been listening to the Walkley Talks podcast, a production of the Walkley Foundation, which encourages excellence and innovation in Australian journalism. Sign up to our newsletter at walkleys.com slash subscribe. Find us on iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud. If you like this podcast, rate it on iTunes or chuck us a few dollars at walkleys.com slash donate to help us keep doing it. It's produced by me, Kate Golden, for the Walkley Foundation with help from the 2SER studios in Sydney, Australia. Catch you next time.